Chapter Three of The Ghosts of Piccadilly. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Yearsley. The Ghosts of Piccadilly by G. S. Street. Chapter Three. Another Contrast of Neighbours. Eighty One and Eighty Two. I would not weary the reader with contrasts, but when, side by side, with only the width of Bolton Street between them, there stand two houses in Piccadilly of which one is most famous as a ruinous gambling club, and the other as a scene of blameless lionizing, with Thomas Carlyle for the chief king of beasts. Why, then, I cannot help myself. Captain Gronow, whose reminiscences no lover of gossip about great names, and no student of strange differences in manners, should miss reading, gives the following account of Waitier's Club. He says that some members of White's and Brooks's were dining with the Prince Regent, and were asked by him what sort of dinners they got at their clubs. They grumbled, of course, as members of clubs are wont to grumble, and Sir Thomas Stepney told him that their dinners were always the same. The eternal joints or beefsteaks, the boiled fowl with oyster sauce, and an apple tart. This is what we have, sir, at our clubs, and very monotonous fare it is. The prince, without further remark, continues Gronow, no doubt he was too deeply moved to speak, rang the bell for his cook, Wattier, and in the presence of those who dined at the royal table, asked him whether he would take a house and organise a dinner-club. Wattier assented, and named Madison the prince's page, manager, and Laborie the cook, from the royal kitchen. Note, the usual accounts, by the way, speak of Waitier's Club as one originally established in 1807 by Lord Hedford and other young men for musical concerts, but it can hardly have been Waitier's before the advent of the Prince's Cook. End note. Hence the famous Waitier's Club, where the dinners were exquisite. The best Parisian cooks could not beat Laboury and where Captain Gronauer had the happiness of frequently seeing His Royal Highness the Duke of York, and hence, alas, many tears, for the play was terrible, and in a few years had ruined most of the members, among them the prince of all dandies. George Brummel was made perpetual president of the club. One cannot say that justice has never been done to Brummel, is there not Barbet d'Aurevilly's classic, Du Dandisme et de Georges Brumel? But, in English at least, he has more often been written about in a slighting manner, which seems to me to show little judgment of character. It is absurd to suppose that Brummel, whose grandfather let lodgings in Berry Street, achieved his position in the English society of that time by foppery and impudence, it is possible that to strive and care for such a position is hardly the mark of a great mind. That is another question. The point is that it was most difficult to achieve, and that Brummel achieved it. True that the best of English society has seldom been superficially exclusive, but it did not, in the early nineteenth century, open its doors to men of no birth, merely because they knocked at them in smart clothes. Also, it is one thing to dine with or visit a society, and another to lay down laws for it, and be really intimate with its governing members. Even after Brummel had been cut by the regent, he continued to stay with his brother the Duke of York at Oatlands, 
and was the friend of the Duchess till her death. The Duchess of Devonshire, Georgiana herself, Erskine, Sheridan, Fitzpatrick, note Charles Fox's greatest friend, end note, William Lamb, afterwards the Prime Minister, Lord Melbourne and Byron all wrote verses for Brummell's album, which is quite a different thing from his writing in theirs. Beyond doubt he was a popular leader of the society he lived in. He did not achieve this by foppery. Brummell's foppery, indeed, consisted merely in a quite artistic effort to improve the ugly dress of his time, and in seeking something of grace and elegance in the common things men used. The regent was his enthusiastic pupil in these matters, and was forever trying his bulky person in coats designed by Mr. Brummell and executed by Mr. Weston of Old Bond Street, the artist whom Mr. Brummell favoured. Alas, as the delightful captain tells us, the hours of meditative agony which each dedicated to the odious fashions of the day have left no monument save the coloured caricatures in which these illustrious persons have appeared. But Brummell's ideal of dress was never extravagant, rather was it a sort of finished simplicity. Exquisite propriety was Byron's phrase for it, and his leading maxim, fresh linen and plenty of it, might be commended to the sternest of rationalists. Nor did he gain his position by impudence. Impudent he was on occasion, no doubt, with that sort of comical self-exaggeration or emphasis of the foibles accredited to him, which has been the gay humour characteristic of other poseurs on the surface, Irishmen as a rule, and I cannot help thinking that nobody who had not Irish blood in him could push folly with a serious face, as did Brummel now and then. Only a man's enemies, or too intensely Saxon people, call that kind of humour effrontery. As for a different sort of impudence, the sort of the famous, "'Who's your fat friend?' Given the circumstances, I call that courage and a kind of practical wit. Brummel was handsome. He broke his nose, being thrown from his horse at Brighton, while his regiment, the Tenth Hussars, was being reviewed. But that did not signify. Handsome and well-made, and with an address that commended him to women. At Eton, he was an admirable Crichton, apparently both a wet bob and a dry bob. The best scholar the best boatman, the best cricketer, and laid there the foundation of his social success. He was a man of taste in other things than dress, could sing and draw, dance beautifully, and write agreeable verses. Recorded jokes of another age are always stupid, and Brummel's are no exception. Real wit that endures, cut and dried, is rare. I am happy to have known some of the wittiest people of my time, and don't remember half a dozen jokes that were worth writing down. It is always the manner, the humour of the occasion, the right touch of folly, that makes one's merriment. It is little against the wit of another age that we who were not there cannot laugh at it, and it is certain that George Brummel had the essentials of good company. Beyond all that, however, I think we must credit him with some genuine force of character, and a sense of perspective and values which kept his head steady, wherein others might have been easily turned. I grant the triviality of the ambition to which these qualities were applied, yet I cannot imagine Brummel as the ordinary aspiring snob, 
rather would i say that he collected dukes and duchesses as he collected snuff-boxes and there's a difference certainly he had character lady hester stanhope she who led that strange life in the east a woman of independent judgment and the last person to be influenced by fashion and foppery wrote that the man was no fool and i should like to see him again brummel died mad as we know and it is likely that his affliction was coming on him before his ruin in london the recklessness of his latter course there looks like it and it is quite possible that when his saner balance was gone the gay mock assertiveness became bare impudence and the wit buffoonery he was ruined at Waitiers in the same year that saw byron's voluntary but inevitable banishment scrope davies the buck and man about town who was byron's intimate had this letter from him at the last my dear scrope lend me two hundred pounds the banks are shut and all my money is in the three per cents it shall be repaid to-morrow morning yours george brummel and scrope davies answered my dear george tis very unfortunate but all my money is in the three per cents yours s davies one is disposed to like scrope davies because he stuck to byron with hobhouse lady jersey and very few more in the time of the scandal but the heartlessness of that note offends taste as much as sentiment and one remembers that even in byron's case many stories of absurdities came from this same scrope davies the two most famous stories about brummel illustrate the uncertainty of such traditions there is that about his telling the regent to ring the bell and the prince's doing so and ordering his guest's carriage he denied it and jesse in his life gives the explanation that being asked at carlton house by the prince to ring the bell and being deep in talk with lord moira at the moment he said without thinking your royal highness is close to it whereupon the easily enraged prince rang the bell and ordered brummel's carriage but was placated by lord moira captain gronow however gives a different story which was told him by sir arthur upton present at the time the regent heard that brummel had won twenty thousand pounds from george drummond a partner in the famous bank and turned out for this exploit playing whist while at white's and characteristically impressed asked the beau to dinner they had quarrelled but brummel i suppose who was certainly the better gentleman of the two thought it a reconciliation and went the prince's bad blood and bad breeding i call his great champion mr beerbohm's attention to these phrases which are mine not gronow's came out in full force he took advantage of brummel's growing a little gay with wine to say to the duke of york i think we had better order mr brummel's carriage before he gets drunk both stories of course may be true as for the fat friend anecdote jesse says the prince was walking with lord moira and brummel with alvanley but Gronow makes the scene a ball, and the prince's companion Lady Worcester, in which case Prinny's wrath is the more intelligible. Poor Brummel! We get a last vivid glimpse of him at Calais in 1830, in the memoirs of Charles Greville, who must have met him often at Oatlands. I found him in his old lodging, dressing, some pretty pieces of old furniture in the room, an entire toilet of silver, 
and a large green macaw perched on the back of a tattered silk chair with faded gilding, and he adds in a phrase of rare eloquence, full of gaiety, impudence, and misery. He was to sink lower in the ten years left of his existence, to a debtor's prison at Caen, and its asylum of the Bon Sauveur. God rest him. But if his ghost walks, he shakes his fist at eighty-one Piccadilly. It is time that we returned there. Byron was a member, as he tells us in his detached thoughts. I liked the dandies. They were always very civil to me. I knew them all, more or less, and they made me a member of Waitiers, a superb club at that time, being, I take it, the only literary man, except two others, both men of the world, M and S, in it. He means Thomas More and William Spencer, and the passage is a little odd, since to a literary man, qua that, Waitiers could hardly have been a desirable resort. Byron, however, did not play then, nor to any extent. He had given it up since cards replaced dice, and Macau was the game at Waitiers. I was very fond of it when young, that is to say of hazard, for I hate all card games, even Pharaoh. When Macco, or whatever they spell it, was introduced, I gave up the whole thing, for I loved and missed the rattle and dash of the box and dice, and the glorious uncertainty not only of good luck or bad luck, but of any luck at all, as one had sometimes to throw often to decide at all. Since one and twenty years of age I played but little, and then never above a hundred or two or three, which would not have gone far at Waitiers. So it was not all gambling there. Some men, no doubt, went for the good eating, as some went in later years to Crockford's. We hear also of a masquerade given by Waitiers to the Duke of Wellington and the conquering sovereigns. Wellington and co. is Byron's irreverent phrase, in 1814. There was a curious representation of this masquerade given at Drury Lane a year later, when some of the Drury Lane committee, it was run something as Covent Garden is now, Byron included, went on the stage among the supers. Waitiers came to an end in 1819. Apparently the members had succeeded in ruining each other, but the association of gambling with 81 Piccadilly was not over, and one great name yet illustrates the house. That is none other than Crockford himself. It is not quite certain, but I believe is almost so, that among other hells in which this financial genius was interested, en route from the fish-shop where his fortunes began to the most famous of all English gambling-places in St. James's Street, was one held at 81 Piccadilly. It was a French hazard bank, and the partners cleared £200,000. The use of false dice was charged against them. Indeed, actual false dice, said to have been used at 81, were exhibited later in Bond Street. So much for 81 Piccadilly. I know not who lives there now, but I trust that in honour of Waitiers an occasional game of cards is played on the premises. We cross from the east to the west side of Bolton Street and come to 82, which was and is Bath House. The original house was built by the Earl of Bath, William Pulteney, the statesman of George II's time, Sir Robert Walpole's opponent. His is not a personality of much interest to me, but I am glad he lived in Piccadilly, because, by virtue of a quarrel, he gives me fair grounds to linger for one brief moment over an old study of mine, John Lord Hervey. 
Besides, they fought their duel in the Green Park opposite. John, Lord Hervey, Baron Hervey of Ickworth, the second title of Lord Bristol, whose eldest son he was, not Lord John Hervey, as inaccurate writers have called him, has left us some of the best memoirs in the language. You must skip the details of politics no longer alive for us, but you have left one of the most real and living pictures of a court and society round it ever penned. He was most intimately of the world he shows us, but by gift of intellect and an ironical temperament could stand apart and take a view of it. Something of a pessimist, and with a native scorn of humanity, he offended the sentiment of Thackeray. There is John Hervey, with his deadly smile and ghastly painted face. I hate him. I cannot hate people who interest and amuse me so much, and I doubt if he was hateful. A man intellectually and personally fastidious in a coarse age is sure to be accused of effeminacy. Hervey married a famous beauty, Molly Lepel and fought his duel, though he thought it a silly custom, like a man, and as for painting his face, he did it to save his friends the horror of the intense white illness had painted it first. Truly a remarkable family, those eighteenth-century Herveys. God made men, women, and Herveys, as Lady Townsend said. One of them was said by rumour to be the real father of Horace Walpole, another was the first husband of the bigamous Duchess of Kingston, there were giants of scandal in those days, and another was the Tom Hervey, who printed rude advertisements about his wife, but was so beloved by Dr. Johnson that, if you call the dog Hervey, said the doctor, I should love him. I come back with a sigh and an apology to my Lord Bath. Hervey wrote the dedication to a pamphlet attacking him. He replied with another, in which Pope may have found hints for his own epithets for Hervey, Sporus, the Emperor Nero's eunuch, and Lord Fanny. Hervey had no option but to fight him, and a bloodless duel in the Green Park followed, and Lord Bath had only to cross the road to be at home again. The Barings succeeded the Paltonies, and Alexander Baring, the first Lord Ashburton, built the house we know, or at least can see for a moment if we turn up Bolton Street when its gates are open, in 1821. He was, of course, the head of Baring Brothers, so that, with Sir Julius Werner, the present occupant, Bath House does but continue a tradition of successful finance. It is from Harriet, the wife of the second Lord Ashburton, that Bath House has its celebrity. The Lady Ashburton, who, there and at the Grange, was the admired hostess of all the literati and illuminati, poets, philosophers, men of science, of her day, or Lady Ashburton's printers, as Lady Jersey, quite sublimely exclusive, preferred to call them. She, truly, is a gracious presence among the shades of Piccadilly. Her name sounds in a chorus of praise through the letters of the time. A magnanimous and a beautiful soul, said Carlyle and Monckton Milnes, that one hardly knew whether it was the woman or the wit that was so charming. It is provoking of Charles Greville to have dropped his acid into this cup, to have left us his opinion that she was capricious and quarrelsome. Let us be sure that their quarrel was his fault. He had the grace to admit her goodness when she was dead. Lady Ashburton's ghost has a right to walk in Piccadilly, 
but I am doubtful about her society of geniuses. It was, on the whole, so sure that the wisdom of all the ages had flowered in it, so convinced of the golden time of progress, so truly respectable and really good, that I doubt it would frighten away some other shades we have met, and still more some of whom later on I shall remind you. That is, it ought to frighten them, but I fear they would be stubborn, have their point of view, and hold their ground. No, Tennyson and Carlyle and Mrs. Carlyle and Bishop Wilberforce do not belong to Piccadilly. More peaceful spaces, less worldly memories are theirs. End of chapter 3